Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. We'll be in Hebrews 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 14 through 18 this morning. And I'm so excited for this morning. The truths that we are about to read, if just one of them would sink deep into our hearts, I really think it might profoundly change how we live and how we rightly understand Jesus. That's what the author of Hebrews has been doing kind of for these opening two chapters, is just trying to turn our gaze upon our Savior and talk about his superiority. He stopped for four verses at the beginning of the chapter just to go, so don't drift, draw near. But the gaze has been right back on Jesus and that's exactly where it's gonna get to be this morning. We're gonna look at five absolute glorious truths about Christ and what his incarnation has done for both you and me and for all of mankind if we would but just let the truth get us. And so um, I wish just one would go deep into our hearts, but I'm going to pray all five would. And uh, as I do that, would y'all pray for me? Uh, so let's stop and pray for our morning, and then we're going to jump in and read the text. Lord, would you help us? Before us are some really glorious truths, and yet our minds are prone to wander. Our hearts are prone to just have all sorts of things stored up. And, and so, Lord, will you help us just stop for a second? and clear space in both our heart and mind so that we might rightly gaze upon your son. We need your help in order to do that. And so we just help each and every one of us do that right now. Before us, as always, are glorious verses, a perfect message, and yet I'm a flawed messenger. And so Lord, will you help me get out of the way this morning so that the gaze can be fully upon your son? And we pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read the text for us this morning in Hebrews 2, verse 14. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiations for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." Before us are five absolute glorious truths about Jesus and his incarnation. And I'm not even gonna preview them because if you need to go back at some point, just read the text, they're all right there. But let's just jump into them and move through this passage verse by verse and look at these great truths. The first one in verse 14 is that Jesus came to destroy the devil. The passage starts in 14, it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. He's calling back to where we were last week. 
that this reminder of God is not ashamed to adopt us as children. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. And so this callback of, hey, since therefore the children, that's you and I, share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not ashamed to partake of the very same things that you and I have, which are flesh and blood. It's the mystery of the incarnation. We talked about it some last week, but just this, this, a little bit of this mystery of Jesus is both fully God and Jesus is both fully human. He has drank deeply of the human experience. He's partaken of the same things, flesh and blood. He was born the same way you and I were born. He faced death and died just like you and I will one day. And in between, he faced temptations and pains and struggles and joys all along the way. He has fully identified with us, our lives and our struggles. And why did he do this? It's where the verse goes. It says, so that through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. He was born so that he could die. Why did he need to die? Is because we had subjected ourselves to the power of death. The moment we chose sin is the moment we subjected ourselves to the power of death. And one of the byproducts that we wanna keep reminding each other as we read the book of Hebrews, even in a passage where we're not technically quoting, we're not going back to an Old Testament quote within Hebrews, but we need to remind ourselves Hebrews is giving us a great understanding of our Old Testament throughout it. And so why did Jesus have to die? It's because God has always made a covering for his people. If you go back and read the Old Testament, God has always made a covering for his people. He did it way back for Adam and Eve in the garden. We read consistently for the nation of Israel, the Levitical laws, the sacrificial laws that were there to make a covering for the nation. And now in the age of grace, God's mercy is, is, is climaxing with the covering of Christ and his blood for mankind if we but would receive it. And so Jesus came, Hebrews 9.22 says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. So why did Jesus have to die? Without the shedding of blood. There could be no forgiveness of sin. And we've used language in the past couple of weeks, language like, hey, the Old Testament is inferior. And when we say inferior, do not translate that in your brain to think, oh, the Old Testament was a mistake. The Old Testament was God getting it wrong. No, the Old Testament is pointing to the great climactic sacrifice. And so everything that we saw in the Old Testament was just trying to get people to notice when Christ did come that the ultimate one and only sacrifice for all of mankind would come and that in doing so it might destroy the one who has the power of death. Maybe a better translation, maybe the translation you have says that it would render it powerless. He would render literally Satan powerless, inoperative, ineffective. That's the translation of destroy in that spot. Now, what does it mean? Because it says the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. What does it mean that Satan has the power of death? What does, what does that mean? Because one of the things I always want to be careful about as, uh, as we're just a, a corporate body is I want to make sure we don't ascribe powers to Satan that are true of our God. 
And sometimes we can be prone to ascribe too much power to Satan. We can almost act like he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's omnipotent and all powerful. That's not true of Satan. That's true of our God, not Satan. And so in what sense does Satan have the power of death? Quite easily, as John 8, says, he was a murderer from the beginning. He's the author, he's the originator of sin. And what does sin always lead to? Death. And so in that sense, he has the power of death. And he uses the same temptation over and over again is that sin is not that big of a deal to God. And it won't lead to death, and yet it always does. And he has that power of death, and he keeps telling that lie. He has told it in days past, and he still tells it to you and me today. And so as believers, we can do one of two things. We can fear him, we can be scared of his power. And to be clear, absolutely, Satan roams this earth seeking someone to devour. Absolutely, that's true. And he can cause havoc in this world. Absolutely. And so we shouldn't ignore him. He's a real enemy and we should pay close attention to him. But ultimately though, for the believer, listen, for the believer, Satan is but a dog on a leash. He cannot snatch you out of the father's hands if you are in Christ. He cannot get at your soul if you are in Christ. And anything that he ultimately does in this world for this time being, he has to ask for permission. He is a lame duck dictator finishing out a term that will end and it will end shortly. And so he has been ultimately rendered powerless and ineffective in the lives of believers. He may cause havoc all around us, but it's why in 1 John, John writes, greater is he that is in you, believer, than he who is in the world. That's why Jesus said, don't fear the one that can kill the body. Satan can do a lot of things like that, but you fear the one that can take both the body and the soul because Satan has been rendered ineffective and inoperative by Jesus as to what he can do to the believer's soul. Your soul is safe in Christ because Jesus has destroyed the devil. That's good news. Number two, Jesus has come to deliver us from slavery to the fear of death. That's where the passage goes next, that the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, he's been disarmed. And now Jesus can deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I believe what this passage, what this passage is telling us right here is that in some way, somehow we all live in some form of fear of death that like all of our fears, all of our insecurities, all of that's ultimately rooted in like this, this fear of death. Now that may be conscious for some of you, it's probably more subconscious for the rest of us, but scripture calls death the, the king of all terrors. And let me just tell you a couple things that I think are true about death and maybe where some of our sin patterns might be exposed by it. One is we have no control over death, right? We can't cheat it. And so for those of us that have control issues or anxiety about the future, that can be something that can really play with both of those struggles in significant ways too. It's so final. Death is so final and it exposes what we've done in this lifetime or what we haven't done in this lifetime. And so if you're like me and you have a performance chip in you, 
and you're trying to get a lot done in this life, death just kind of sits waiting, almost asking the question, you haven't done it yet. You haven't done enough yet. You're running out of time. And it sits in there for us. And if we're not careful, it begins to enslave us as we try to get more out of this life. It's so unknown. It's a mystery still to us all. I mean, I feel safe saying that, right? I don't think anyone in here has physically died. If you have, we'll be down front. Come talk to us about it. We'd love to hear more, but it's a mystery. And it will test our faith. And if there's a lack of faith or lack of trust in God, death kind of sits there as, a, as that final, what do I really believe is gonna happen on the other side? And death can use that to terrorize us to a degree, disarm us, make us ineffective. Or maybe you've got hidden sin and you're scared to take it public, but you're also scared death, you might die in that state. And death sits there all along and it further enslaves us. Consciously or subconsciously, this fear of death just continues to lead to lifelong slavery. And it's something that I know really well. One of my great struggles, if I can share, is fear of man. I said earlier, we're supposed to fear the one that can take both the body and the soul. We're supposed to fear God. And yet often I struggle to try to find my worth in people pleasing and performance. And so I fear man, I, I, I live for man's applause for men and women to cheer me on. And this is stuff that I have been in a lifelong battle with. It was a struggle as a kid, as a parent, like trying to please my parents and perform for them as an employee to my employers. It's just constantly, I've constantly valued myself based on the last thing that I've done. And I've battled lies up here for just about my whole life going, have I done enough? Am I enough? Making life about me. And anytime I can perform well for a second, it gives me a momentary bit of relief of going, I'm doing it, I'm worth something. But ultimately that fear of man has led to a lifelong slavery. But Jesus came to deliver us from that slavery through fear of death. Galatians 5.1 says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. You were born to be set free, not be a slave. So stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Stand firm. By God's grace, I can stand before you today and say the lies up here are fewer and quieter than ever before. I've been set free. And so my job is to stand firm and to battle well those lies, to take them captive, to send them to God. Let him help me in those. And by the grace of God, his power in me, not because I've white knuckled and figured it out. There's been some freedom because Jesus came to deliver me from that. And yet, as you and I know, the wrestle is still real and in a way, there might just be a lifelong battle. Mine's fear of man, what's yours? What is it? What is it lies up here? Is it stuff in here? Is it activities you're doing? What has enslaved you? You've been delivered from it. The path has been blazed. He is taking it down. But at the end of the day, at some form, I do think it will be a little bit of a lifelong battle for me. Hope it's not. Maybe Christ and his goodness will just completely pull that, 
that thorn, but it will be a little bit of a battle. You know the day that I will be released from that battle? The day I die. So we don't have to fear death. Death will be one of the great mercies in my life and in your life if you're in Christ. Death for the believer is not an enemy. It is a great friend. It is but a doorway to a new life. Now dying, I get that. I would prefer to die in a very simple, calm manner. But death, when it comes, will be the final, ultimate liberator because of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. What a sweet gift. One day, literally, I will, as scripture says, like fall asleep. And I will have fallen asleep with lies still running around up here. And when I awake, lies up here will be replaced with truth that my eyes get to see. What a glorious day. That's what awaits for the believer. Because Jesus has come to deliver us from that slavery, both in bits and pieces and sanctification, inch by inch here and now. And then one day he will complete that work fully. What a great truth. For the believer, death is no longer an enemy, but a friend. It's a doorway to an entirely new life. An enemy turned friend, thanks to what Christ has done. Number three, Jesus came to become a merciful and faithful high priest. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps. Jesus didn't take on the nature of angels so that he could redeem the fallen angels. He took on the nature of man. He made himself lower than the angels by taking on our nature so that he could rescue fallen men because it is he, because he helps the offspring of Abraham. And so therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. More on that in a second. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Why did Jesus have to become like us in order to become a merciful and faithful high priest? Again, he's fulfilling Old Testament Law, Hebrews 5.1 is going to kind of nod to this. He's, it's going to say, for every high priest chosen is chosen from among men. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. High priests were chosen from men. We needed a faithful and, high, uh, faithful and merciful high priest. So Jesus became a man so that he could be chosen from us in order to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for our sin. This is what Jesus as merciful and high priest is doing. And we often forget, believer, that Christ is still actively working on our behalf. Do you know that? Has that truth sunk deep into your heart? Christ still actively works on our behalf today. His atoning work, let me be very clear, his atoning work for us on the cross is over. He has satisfied God's wrath with his death on the cross. That work is done. But he is not a, he is not a God who's sitting up in the heavenlies just kicked back doing nothing on our behalf. And often believers or maybe others just go, what's, what's happening? Is Jesus like mad at me every time I slip up? Is he, is he ashamed? Is he disappointed in me? No, 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 no. Christ is actively listening to this. He is actively interceding for you. Hebrews 7, 25, he is able to save to the uttermost. He will complete the work of those who draw near to God through him since he always lives, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Right now, Jesus is praying for you, interceding for you in the heavenlies. 
right now, think about that. He's praying you and I would take our next faithful steps of sanctification, our next faithful steps of becoming more like him, that we would yield to the gospel transformative power that is in us. That's what he's actively doing, interceding for you right now. His work is not done as he continues to sanctify us. But you go, but what, but what if I do sin? What is his response if I do sin? First John 2, 1. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so when we do a sin, when we do sin, he's not there accusing us. He aligns himself with us, joins our corner and advocates for us. Don't ascribe to Christ what is true of Satan. Satan is the accuser of the brethren, Revelations 12, 10 says. It says he stands before God continually, day and night, accusing you and I for all that we've done wrong before God. Satan every day, park that park, he's the gambler. He's the guy struggling with fear of man again. And Jesus just stands right there going, he's mine. I know all about it. I got the full Carfax report a long time ago. I know past, present, and future sins. And you can call that guy a junker, but he's mine. And he stands in our corner and won't have a bit of that. He is not the accuser. He's our advocate in the heavenlies. That's who you have in the heavenlies. On your behalf, if you're in Christ, what a glorious truth. Jesus stands up, speaks up, and defends us in the courts of heaven. That's a merciful and faithful high priest, and that's what man needed. And so he became like one of us. Let's finish out verse 17, truth number four. To make, he became this merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiations for the sins of the people. That's good news. He came to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That is gospel good news right there. Worthy of thousands of sermons. And I only get four to five minutes with it right now. It's good news, but let me start with the bad news. God's wrath towards sin is real. It is real. Sin is a despicable offense to a holy God, and we have a holy God. And just as this chapter started, every, tra- every transgression, every act of disobedience will receive just retribution. It was true in the Old Testament. It will absolutely be true in this age of grace that Christ has ushered in. God's wrath towards sin is really real. Romans eleven twenty two. 22, Paul says, you must take note of both the kindness and severity of God. Take note of the kindness and severity of God. So let's do that for a second. I'm gonna go to Nahum chapter one. And we're gonna read a few verses from Nahum chapter one. And we're gonna take note of the kindness and the severity of God together. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Don't miss that. Severity here. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Kindness. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Severity. And the Lord will by no means 
clear the guilty. In fact, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Kindness. The Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. He hasn't forgotten. Severity. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. That is real. God is a God, holy God whose justice burns with righteous indignation against sin. And he has sworn that sin will be punished. Who can stand under that indignation? Who can endure the heat of anger? Answer, only God himself. Take note of the kindness and severity. And somehow, some way, God brought both of them to an intersection at the cross. And at the cross, the severity of God, the wrath of God meets the kindness of God. And the wrath of God turns on himself and on his son. And Christ made propitiation for the sins. He satisfied the wrath of God in that moment. The severity intersected by the kindness. There was, must be a satisfactory payment for sin and that is Christ. He propitiated our sins. He satisfied the wrath of God. And in his kindness, he turned his wrath on himself so that we wouldn't have to endure it all Sin for all people, for all mankind will be fulfilled one way or the other. It will get, pl- the wrath of God can be satisfied with eternal punishment in hell or the wrath of God can be satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ and his blood. And if you choose to opt and trust in Christ's sacrifice for you, you get the benefits of that sacrifice, which is your sins propitiated. And the goal of this is not to go be scared of this. The goal is that you would understand the kindness of God and let that lead you to repentance. Because Christ has made propitiations for your sins and that is really good news. Now, if you have not yet trusted in Christ, let me be really clear and I issue a incredibly gracious and hopefully timely warning. You are still under God's wrath. You are still under God's wrath and one day God's wrath will await you. But you can identify with Christ and what he has done in making satisfaction for God's wrath on your behalf. Don't miss out on that offer today. It awaits and maybe it's just the kindness of the Lord that he drew you here today that you might hear it one more time or maybe for the first time in a way. And so pay close attention to it. Don't drift away from it. Number five, Jesus came to help those who are being tempted and tested. It's what it says in verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Your translation may say tested. Either would work in that situation. It could be a trial, it could be a test, or it could be a temptation. But because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I said I'd come back to verse 17, that that he was made like us in every respect. 
He identifies with us. Stuff as basic as being hungry or thirsty. If that's ever been you, Jesus has been there. If you've ever gotten tired or weak, Jesus has been there. If you've ever been tempted, it's all of us. That's not a sin, by the way, to be tempted or else Jesus would have sinned. Jesus felt temptation, even to a stronger degree than you and I ever have. We've given into it at some point. Christ has held strong in the face of all of its strength. He's experienced it. He's experienced grief when death has come. He's experienced righteous indignation. Have you been betrayed by a friend? Christ has. Physically assaulted, mocked. Have you ever been alone in the midst of trouble? You have a sympathetic high priest who's been there in the garden, alone amidst trouble. Maybe you've felt forsaken by God at some point in your journey. Even Jesus has been there. He has drank deeply of the human experience. He has partaken of that which flesh and blood partakes of. And thus, he is able to help us. The, 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 the phrase there that, that he is able to help us, it's, it literally often is used as in the ch- of, of, of a, a situation where uh, a cr- child cries out. And so it's, it's, it's this picture of he's able to help us in that it is like a parent running to a child that's crying out. That's what it means, able to help us. Render aid, your thing might be. It would, it's like if we just would cry out and go, Lord, do you even understand? And he's right there, able to help us in a moment's notice. And he's not mad at you. you you've given in to temptation. You're still struggling. He's not mad at you. It, Hebrews 5, 2 says, he himself was beset with weakness. He, he was beset with all those things that we just put up on the slide so that he could deal gently with us. Those of us who are ignorant and wayward, he comes running to us. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man or felt by Christ. But God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You don't have to do it alone. When you, temptation comes, there's so many different things you can do. When trial comes, when tests come, you run to his word. You, you, the, the lies that are up here, you replace it with truth from here. You plead for God in prayer like a kid to a parent. Go to God in prayer. Throw on music. Call other friends that are maybe more fully yielded to the spirit in the moment. And they can come run and they can help. Jesus came to help those who are being tempted and tested. And he wants to show off his power in your weakness. In Old Testament, and we'll look at some of this in, in uh, next chapter in Hebrews 3. God would sometimes test the, the nation of Israel because he wanted to find out what was in them. What was in them. Today, when tests and trials and temptations come, it's an opportunity for us to find out what's in us. Is it the spirit of God that's in us, leading us, that we're yielding to? And if so, in that moment where we acknowledge we get our flesh out of the way and we let the spirit of God be our strength, it's such a great picture. He who is able to help us 
we get to marvel at his power in our lives because he is able to help those who are being tempted and tested. What a good God who took on flesh so that he could understand the challenges that we face. It's a sweet God. Five incredible truths. And I don't want you to miss out any one of them. In Jesus, we have someone that's defeated Satan himself, he's delivered us from slavery. He, we have an advocate in the heavenlies. We have an intercessory in the heavenlies. We have a faithful and merciful high priest. And we have a sympathetic priest who's able to help us in all of those moments. Don't miss those truths. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.